Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Former President Trump is now facing four indictments, one out of New York, two federal, and one out of Fulton County, Georgia. These cases will be playing out in the coming months and years. Last week, we discussed Trump and his legal team's claim that the First Amendment protects Trump against the federal charges related to election interference. This week, we are delving into another issue that has come up around speech, and that is concerns about witness tampering. When does permitted criticism turn into tampering or juror intimidation? I'm thrilled to be joined for this conversation by returning guest Barb McQuaid. Barb is a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, current professor of law at Michigan Law School, NBC News legal analyst, and co-host on the Sisters in Law podcast. Barb, welcome back to Broken Law. Oh, thanks very much. Glad to be with you. It is so great to have you, and I'm so grateful that you had time and your very, very busy schedule. For folks who don't know, you are a very frequent guest on MSNBC these days, providing insight into all of the legal proceedings that are unfolding. Well, the news cycle is keeping many of us busy these days. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. We're going to talk about a, a couple things, um, but I just wanted, we're two days out from the Georgia indictment coming out. I wanted to get your overall takeaways uh, from the indictment. Is it what you expected? Yes and no, I guess I'll say. Um, yes, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a RICO indictment for a long time and that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has a fondness for the RICO statute and has used it frequently. So I wasn't surprised there. I was surprised that she named 19 defendants, uh, you know, especially after we saw the federal indictment that named only one, Donald Trump, which appeared to me to be an effort to streamline things and, and get a quick trial date as quick you know, as possible. And it seems that Fonnie Willis kind of went the other direction, much more fulsome by naming 19 people. But it looks like, you know, a sound indictment. It is not much different from many other RICO indictments, which often do name a large number of people because the whole point of RICO is to charge the members of a criminal enterprise, uh, including the bottom and the top people in that hierarchy. Do you expect that case then to proceed a little more slowly because of the RICO charges, because of how complex the case is? I don't know if the RICO charges will make it slower to get to trial. Yeah. But I do think the fact that there are 19 defendants will delay the trial date. And that's because even if they set uh, a quick trial date, you know, Fannie Willis said she, she thinks she can try the case in six months. Even if they were to set an initial trial date in six months, when you've got that many defendants, just invariably things happen. Uh, that means 19 defendants filing motions and, uh, you know, the briefing and the argument and the decision-making that goes along with all of that. Sometimes, uh, you know, they have trouble securing a lawyer or they want to get a new lawyer. And so just when you have 19 people, it just seems likely that things are going to delay. And, and I'd be surprised if this trial, you know, came, came to a trial date within a year or even more. Uh, you know, the, the RICO cases I've been involved with often are, are well more than a year in litigation before they go to trial. One last question on Georgia, just because it, it's come up very, very quickly in the wake of the indictment. These were state charges, but already Mark Meadows has moved to move them to a, to a federal court. Do you expect to see that this trial is going to end up being before federal court? No, I don't think so. You know, the argument is there is a federal statute that says a federal official who is charged in state court may ask a judge to remove the matter to federal court 
you know, to make sure that he's not getting a raw deal by a different sovereign. Um, but the standard is if the alleged conduct occurred within the scope of his official duties. And, you know, the motion says all I was doing was making calls and sending messages at the behest of the president. That's my job as chief of staff. Well, yes, but, it, you know, it, it wasn't it was a little more than that. It was allegedly tampering with an election. And so I think the counter argument will be that this was outside the scope of his authority and actually abused his authority. So I think it will likely be a loser in the end. Donald Trump tried to remove the criminal case filed in Manhattan involving business records uh, to federal court. He lost that one. Although I will say this is a little bit of a stronger case here in Georgia for removal. In the New York case, it related to you know business, falsification of business records, mostly occurring before Trump's presidency. This one does occur within Trump's presidency, so that box is checked. But I think this within the scope of official duties uh, is is going to be insurmountable for Mark Meadows and other defendants who might want to jump on this removal bandwagon. I, well, that's encouraging, but also, again, something that we will be seeing play out in the coming weeks. So talking specifically about Trump as a defendant, one of the things that I think has been made very, very clear is that Trump will talk about this. He's going to talk about all of these different cases. He's going to talk about them on the campaign trail, in the press, on social media, and already that is starting to raise several additional concerns. But before we get into specifics, can you just talk to us about the concept of witness tampering? What does that mean? When does it apply? How does it work in a criminal case? Well, there's a federal witness tampering statute that makes it a crime to you know, kill a witness, injure a witness, threaten a witness. But um, there's also a part that makes it a crime to intimidate a witness or corruptly persuading another witness uh, in an effort to influence, delay, or prevent their testimony in any official proceeding. And so, you know, certainly uh, you need to lie for me uh, or or else you will be harmed. Or um, if you lie for me, you will get a reward. Those would certainly be covered. But I think, you know, even anything that is, is uh, intimidating, you know, how is that word interpreted? I think there's some room for interpretation, but is it enough to threaten somebody over social media? Is it enough to threaten somebody knowing that, you know, if you just say enough things, that person will be harassed by others or maybe harmed by others or stalked by others? So it's a really interesting question in this context. Is there a definition? Because I, it seems like such a murky area, the difference between like, naming somebody and suggesting something versus trying to intimidate a witness and change their testimony. Yeah. In, in, you know, the word intimidation, I think is broad enough in scope to include a lot of language, but I think prosecutors are, are reluctant in many cases to accuse somebody of this in light of free speech rights and misinterpreting, you know, to file somebody a, a, a a criminal charge means you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury unanimously of 12 people that the person did this thing. And so I think here where you have a former president, the government will be loath to be seen as trying to prevent his First Amendment rights. I think a court would be reluctant to want to infringe upon his First Amendment rights. So, you know, just saying Trump posted something the other day about Little little Mike Pence, L-I-D-D-L-E, you know, clearly trying to be insulting to him. You know, Pence is very likely to be a witness in these cases. And when Trump disparages him online, um, even if Pence says, you know, I don't care what Trump says about me, I'm good. Um, 
you know, he has to think about the political consequences of that. He wants to, he's running for president too. And so to the extent he draws the ire of Donald Trump, that harms his political fortunes. Is that enough to be seen as intimidation? Or we know that when Donald Trump sends his wrath at a particular person or event, other people might answer the call. Uh, we might see, you know, the, the same kind of response we got on January 6th, uh, that some people might take it upon themselves to uh, see Donald Trump's insults of, of witnesses as a call to action, and they might harm them or protest them or dox them or do all kinds of things. So it's really a fine line when you're kind of crowdsourcing the intimidation the way Trump often does, even if only indirectly. Well, and when as soon as this topic came up, it made me think back to the January 6th Select Committee public hearings last year. And there was concern about witness intimidation then. In fact, the committee moved up a hearing because of this very concern that witnesses were being contacted. But as you noted, nothing came of those. There were no charges filed. It was just a, a repeated concern by committee members. Yeah, it's it's difficult to prove. You have to show that the person had the intent to influence, delay, or prevent their testimony. And so, you know, short of a gag order, I think they a defendant could say, you know, no, I have a right to say that this witness is uh, unbelievable, is not credible, especially when I'm running for president. I have to be able to defend myself in the court of public opinion. And so one way I'm doing that is by saying what I believe to be true, that, uh, you know, Mike Pence is uh, a liar or whatever it is, or was weak or whatever is the current statement that Donald Trump is saying. So I, I think it's a really challenging area for a judge. And, and of course, if a judge gets too heavy handed, uh, that plays into Trump's hands, uh, where he's trying to portray himself as a victim, and that this is all a political effort to prevent him from being elected. And so I think if he is gagged or jailed for saying any of these kinds of things, it, it kind of just uh, plays into his hands in portraying himself in that way. So it, it's a tough place for prosecutors and for the judge to be. Yeah. And so just to get into one specific, because this is one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you specifically, you flagged a, a particular social media post by Trump in which he targeted former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. And amongst other things in that post, Trump said that Duncan shouldn't testify before the Fulton County Grand Jury. So this was obviously before the indictment came down. But that was naming a specific person and telling them to do something, telling them not to do something. You you said that that was uh, witness tampering in real time. Yeah, I mean, that one, it, because it was so direct, you know, a lot of times it's difficult because it's kind of vague. Well, it's just a general... Uh, attack on his credibility. I wasn't trying to interfere with his testimony in any way. I mean, saying he shouldn't testify, that's about as close as you get to uh, corruptly persuading another person uh, in an effort to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of that person. So that's, that's pretty close. Uh, and I could imagine a charge based on that. Or uh, we'll see how loose Fonnie Willis wants to be in this case, or how tight a leash she wants to seek for Donald Trump. But I could imagine that being a basis as a condition of release, that he cannot make comments directed to or about witnesses on social media. You know, I think everybody's very reluctant to enter a gag order on Donald Trump because he's a candidate for president. But to the extent you're talking about a witness in a, in a criminal case, I don't think it is too much to ask a judge to order the defendant as a condition of release 
to refrain from intimidating witnesses. That's not so hard. And, and I'd be very specific about it. You know, you can't intimidate witnesses on social media. Can you just define gag order for folks who aren't familiar with that? Yeah. And it takes a lot of forms and it, the term gets abused a lot. But in some cases, you will see a judge enter an order that just says, you cannot speak publicly about this case. Don't talk to the media. You know, you see that sometimes in high profile cases because the judge doesn't want the case tried in the media where the jury pool might be poisoned uh, or tainted by things they hear that are not evidence that can't be used in the case. And so from time to time, judges will enter. It's a variation on a protective order. I'm protecting the, the, the rights, the integrity of this trial for both parties by asking you not to talk about it publicly. Um, no judge has entered a gag order yet against Donald Trump. You know, there has been some back and forth about a protective order. Those are standard, right? Protective orders are pretty common compared to gag Pretty order. standard. And, and what that says is, I will not release the discovery material, the, the evidence that the government is obligated to provide to me as I prepare for my trial and put it out there in the public domain. You know, the government has said they've got grand jury transcripts, they've got recordings, they've got witness statements. And what they don't want to happen is hand that over to Donald Trump, and then he publishes them online. He posts it on the internet. Here's what Mike Pence said at the grand jury. And so that does seem pretty standard. You know, it's not entered in every case, only cases where there may be an issue, especially cases where there is a real concern about witness intimidation or witness safety. Uh, but pretty non-controversial. And it's been done in a lot of the January 6th cases, so not, not controversial. So a judge has entered an order there, although even there gave him a lot of leeway um, not everything he receives in discovery, which I, frankly, in my view, he doesn't have a First Amendment right to publish things that he gets in discovery. Those are for the purpose of preparing his defense, not to try his case in the media. But nonetheless, the judge entered a fairly narrow protective order saying uh, anything the government marks as sensitive, you can't disclose. So it might be these things that we've been talking about, like grand jury transcripts and recordings and witness statements. But other things, uh, he'll, he'll be able to share publicly. So I don't know about that, but I guess she's trying to uh, you know, give him as much slack as she can. Um, but that's in contrast to a gag order, which is you can't discuss the case at all in public. And that happens from time to time, you know, but never before have we had a defendant who is also running for president. And I think it's fair to say you know, imagine for a second that this person is not Donald Trump, that this is a, a, a candidate that you might want to support for president. Um, it does seem that that person and, and the voters have a right to kind of hear that person's side of the story because a trial might be delayed even past the election. And if I'm going to cast an informed vote, I want to hear what this guy has to say about these charges. You know, he's been accused of committing these various serious crimes. What does he have to say about it? And so I think to gag him and prevent him from defending himself when the case is not going to go to trial for some time might be a, a bit much. But I, I thought Judge Chutkin had an interesting perspective on it, which was, well, if you want, we can just move up the trial date and we can have the trial sooner and you can tell your story then. And he didn't seem to like that approach either. I was going to ask you about that because that is one, one of the questions here is if you can't, if you can't or, or opt not to gag him, what else can you do other than just letting him continue to spout whatever he wants to spout? And the judge does have the option of, of speeding up the trial and saying, actually, we're going to, the trial is going to start in four months instead of next year. How does that impact this thinking? Because so far the thinking is Trump wants the trial pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. So is that the biggest arrow in her quiver? Yeah. And I don't know, you know, 
on the one hand, moving up the, the trial date is an, a good arrow in her quiver, but she can't move it up too much because she does have to make sure that she's giving him due process. And so um, if he needs additional time to reasonably prepare, to review discovery material, to file motions, then I think she's creating an issue for appeal if she demands a trial too quickly. And so, you know, typically a, a case is supposed to go to trial within 70 days. The defendant has a right to that speedy trial. And the, and the public also has a right to a speedy trial within 70 days. But in a case with voluminous discovery, novel legal issues, it would be, I think, a violation of defendant's due process rights to speed him along too much. So she does have that arrow, but I don't think she can say, let's go to trial next week or immediately to get you to stop. There are some things she can do. I think you could enter an order that doesn't say you can't say anything about the case, but maybe one that says you can't talk about the witnesses per se. Although one of the witnesses may be one of his primary opponents. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a good point too, right? Um, So so Mike Pence is a good example there. Yeah. So it's really, really tricky about what a judge can do here to try to rein him in. I mean, I think she could say things about his role as a witness or about his testimony and prevent him from talking about that, but still go after him on his policy views or other kinds of things. But it, it is going to be tricky, you know, especially because of Trump's track record of being so incendiary. Uh, he's already posted all kinds of things about the prosecutors and the judges and some of the witnesses, as you have said. And so I think he's going to test the boundaries because he can. And, you know, if a judge dares to jail him, he may see that as victory because then he can portray himself as the victim and the victim of political persecution. Well, and it brings up the issue that's come up of should he be found guilty is can he be incarcerated? He's under Secret Service protection. What does it look like for the Secret Service to protect somebody in federal prison? (laughs) Again, you know, all these novel issues, uh, Donald Trump kind of breaks everything he, he starts or yeah. he joins. Um, no clear answer. Uh, I, I think that for um, all of these, the two federal cases and the Georgia case, at least, he is facing prison time, significant prison time. But a judge could impose a sentence and then order that it be ha- uh, served in home confinement. Or in the federal system, it is the Bureau of Prisons who designates a person to a place of confinement. You know, during COVID, a number of these white collar defendants got sent home. Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen uh, all, all were told, go on home and serve the remainder of your sentence in home confinement. So I could see that happening. But, you know, when, when your home confinement is Mar-a-Lago, it's hardly punishment. And so um, if I were the prosecution, I would be working hard to find some safe place of incarceration, you know, solitary confinement in a setting where Secret Service can be present and can monitor his safety. But no doubt, they, they um, regardless of what he ever does in the future, the worst thing he could possibly do, he still remains a former president and he's entitled to that protection. And it's a protection for all of us. He has in his head all kinds of national security secrets. If he were with the general population in a prison, those secrets could be beaten out of him. Um, you know, foreign spies could get to him and all kinds of things. And so uh, it is important to protect his safety, but there may be some way to incarcerate him, um, you know, in in, uh, in some unusual circumstances while maintaining his safety. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. 
You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support broken law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now back to the conversation. Going back just briefly to the federal election interference case, the other issue that has come up with regards to his comments, and we've somewhat hinted at it, is tainting the jury pool. We're talking about a a case that's going to be tried in D.C., so you're talking about D.C.-eligible jurors. What does it mean to taint? The jury pool, because anybody in D.C. is just flooded right now with media coverage of these cases. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think the legal standard they often talk about is a circus-like atmosphere surrounding the trial. The big case is the Sam Shepard we case. We have that. Yeah, I know, right? The big case is the Sam Shepard case, who was accused of killing his wife, yeah. you know, the, the inspiration for the, the, the fugitive. And it was such a circus-like atmosphere that it was thought that he could not get a fair trial in his home area of Cleveland, and it had to be moved. But um, we live in this circus-like atmosphere these days. Especially around presidential candidates, and Trump in particular. Yeah. So is there any place where he could get a fair trial? I don't know. I think the way you deal with it, one, is you try to minimize the statements that are out there that are about the case. But I, I think the way you deal with it is through a rigorous voir dire process. You know, I know it's hard for people like us who are news junkies and probably people who listen to this podcast who are news junkies to even get their heads around. But during the time I was serving as a prosecutor and selecting juries, it was surprising to me how many people pay very little attention to the news. Uh, They say things like, look, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job. I have a family. I have children I take care of. I just run from one thing to the next. And, you know, I glance at the news. I occasionally read the headlines, but I know he's the president. I know he's been charged with these crimes, but I can't tell you much more than that. So it may take a little longer than in most cases to get a jury that has not heard these things before. But um, my, my guess is that they can find them. They're out there. They, they, and, it, and the standard isn't, have you ever heard of this person? It's, is it's can you set aside anything that you have heard uh, before coming to court and decide the case only on the facts and law you hear here in court? And, you know, you'd be surprised. Most often you can find 12. They found 12 in the Trump Organization case in New York. And so I think they'll be able to find it. But no doubt they should still try to minimize any uh, inflammatory things that are said about Trump or I think the government's case uh, before it goes to trial, because there are all kinds of things that they can say that will never come into evidence. You know, like Trump's First Amendment defense. This is myth, you know, a myth. There is no First Amendment defense here. And, but I, I can imagine if jurors hear it, they might say, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, and so you have to work to minimize some of these uh, defenses or evidence that will never come in to the trial. And one of the things, again, I like that you called it a myth. We talked about that on last week's episode, this notion that the First Amendment protects anything he's ever said. Yeah. But the other thing that's come up with regards to the jury pool is that D.C., voted overwhelmingly for Biden. And so this notion that, well, if if a person voted for Biden, they can't possibly be a member of Trump's jury. Can you just address that point while we're on the topic? Yeah. um, You know, the mere fact that a certain community voted in favor of a particular candidate or against a particular candidate is not the test. Uh, The test is, can you find 12 people in this entire community who can be fair? 
you know, usually the voter turnout in any community is no more than 60% or so. So that means 40% of the residents in most communities didn't vote for anybody. So uh, you can find 12 people anywhere. I think it's a bit overstated to say, you know, this community is more conservative or that community is more liberal and therefore they're going to vote according to their politics. I think that by the time you go through the voir dire process and you ask people questions about their background and their fairness and the parties have a chance to strike jurors that they find problematic, that regardless of wherever you are, you can find 12 people who can do the job. Last topic on this, which is the judge herself. So we've talked about witness tampering, the jury pool. This has been talked about, including on your podcast, that is so wonderful, sisters and all people should listen to that as well, is that Trump is baiting the judge by name. Does the judge have a response to that? Is this one of those situations where like a judge is a federal official in this case, like she can take it? Or is there a repercussion when you so blatantly and publicly go after a sitting judge? Yeah, my fear is that a judge will be inclined to say, I've got thick skin. That's, you know, I know it's not personal. It's the job. Uh, I've got a target on my back simply because I'm assigned to this case. And so I can handle it. But I think it would be a mistake to do that because even if Donald Trump isn't going to do anything physically to the judge, there is the worry that someone out there will take the bait and harm her. And so whenever he calls these people out by name, whether it's the judge or the prosecutor and disparages them, I worry about their safety or the safety of their staff or you know their colleagues, the other people who work in their buildings. I think they have to take those kinds of threats very seriously. And um, you know, there's this term called stochastic terrorism, and it means random. I don't know who or where or when, but when I say these incendiary things, someone out there is going to take the bait. Uh, I think, you know, the the man who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband had probably heard for years all these things about, you know, Nancy Pelosi is the devil. The man who attacked the FBI office in Cincinnati after the Mar-a-Lago search, I think, was responding to Trump's claims that the FBI planted evidence and had raided his beautiful home and all of that sort of stuff. So it's incredibly reckless and irresponsible for these people to say this. And I, I think I would like to see a judge take a strong stand when they start targeting the judge or the prosecutors or witnesses by me. Yeah. Well, I I'm with you. I think this is, this could get very scary, not just in terms of Trump himself, but what happens as a result of, of what he says. And so I have a feeling this conversation will evolve in time. And, and the last point on this is we've been talking mostly about the federal case. We obviously now have a Georgia case that is subject to Georgia law. Does anything we've talked about thus far, witness tampering, going after witnesses, judges, the prosecutor, does any of that change under Georgia law? Is there anything specific about Georgia that would change the analysis? You know, each each jurisdiction has its own laws that are sort of unique to that community. But in general, um, they all go after the same things, right? Due process, fairness, um, presumption of innocence. And so I don't think there are any major differences that would cause us to think that one forum is uh, very different from another. You know, one difference in Fulton County versus uh, federal court, I suppose, is the fact that you've identified that uh, it is a strongly democratic community. You know, federal jurisdictions tend to be larger. And so that kind of dilutes the, the voting power of any particular community. But I, I think otherwise, you know, laws in general... They may be phrased a little differently. They may have some maybe a little tougher, a little more lenient, but 
they they tend to be consistent in terms of the big picture. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your expertise on all of this. I'll just ask, lastly, what you're looking at. We're in the very, very early stages of all of these cases. It's unclear which one is going to go first. What are you most keeping an eye on right now? All of this pretrial litigation is pretty interesting. I think the next thing we're going to see is the filing of motions. And so, um, you know, this is the stuff that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to in in criminal case work. They look at the trial, you know, there's an indictment has been filed and then some months go by and then there's a trial and people pay attention to that. But when you're the lawyers, this litigation period is a very active period. You know, first there'll be the exchange of discovery. And so the defense attorneys will need some time to review all that and think about it. But then they'll be filing all kinds of motions. And I'm looking for novel legal arguments, you know, things maybe I haven't thought of before because this is such an unusual circumstance. I imagine there will be things like motion to dismiss on the basis of the First Amendment, which I think will not prevail. Um, there may be some constitutional arguments about Donald Trump's abilities as the president, that he was able to do these things. I'm sure there's going to be some advice of counsel defense that we see get raised. But I'm just curious, what else? You know, we, we've anticipated a few of them, but probably not all of them, especially in, in Georgia, where there's 19 defendants, you know, 19 lawyers thinking creatively about how, how they can get rid of this case and get it dismissed. I'm sure we'll see a lot of novel legal arguments. And then the government will have to respond. And there will be oral arguments. So that part of it is actually, I think, really interesting. And it may, I was going to say, it may not get a lot of press. It'll get a lot of press, right? Because it involved Donald Trump. So that's part, I think, your listeners, lawyers, mm-hmm. law students, you should pay attention to because I think it'll be really interesting. And I think we may see some kinds of arguments we've never seen before. Yeah, this is going to get an unusual amount of coverage, which means everybody will get an interesting legal education, whether they're a lawyer or not. So I say that to basically say, Barb, I hope you'll come back because I'm sure we'll have questions and need help understanding it as it plays out. Uh, So thank you so much for making time today. And I hope you will come back in the future. You bet. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Barb for returning to the show. If you missed last week's episode about free speech's breaking point and Trump's mythical First Amendment defense, as Barb described it earlier, now is a great time to catch that episode wherever you're listening to this one. Summer in general is a great time to go back and listen to any and all episodes you may have missed, so take a minute to browse our complete episode library. And make sure to follow us on social media at ACS Law on Twitter, at American Constitution Society on Instagram, and using hashtag Broken Law Podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. <laughs>